0: You're listening to World Building for Masochists,
1: and we're wondering why we do this to ourselves.
0: I
2: do it to get away from the real world.
1: (laughs) I do
3: it to justify all the podcasts I listen to.
2: (laughs) That's good one. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, I'm Marie Brennan. I'm the author of the Memoirs of Lady Trent, as well as other series,
4: and one half of M.A. Carrick.
3: And I am Alice Helms, the other half of M.A. Carrick.
4: I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller.
1: I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska and this is episode 66, Deep History.
4: Well, welcome back, listeners, and welcome back as well to uh, Marie Brennan and Alice Helms, M.A. Carrick, when you put them together. It's great to have you both back. Um, How has it been since the last time we chatted? You've got another book out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The the vagaries of publishing schedules means that uh, The Mask of Mirrors, which is the first of our Rook and Rose books, and The Liar's Knot are coming out in the same calendar year, about 11 months apart. So... That simultaneously feels really fast and also, oh my god, no, it came out like three years ago, right?
0: I was sure we had talked to you all like much longer ago than we initially
2: had. Yeah, I, I think we might have recorded like December of last yeah. year, so it's been nearly a year, but it, it,
4: yeah. the time just seems so weird. Yeah, we've We've determined that time actually has no meaning anymore. It's just, it's made up. It's just a blob. And we exist somewhere in it. Every Maybe
3: day is Thursday. Blursday. <laughs> and especially with writing where you've got like a you know, a book coming out, a book you're like that's in the editorial process and then a book that you're writing and so it's like you can never remember what it was that you're working on or talking about. <laughs>
4: yeah. People ask like, Tell me about your latest book and I'm like, I don't know what that means.
1: Tell us about this book and you're like, Oh man, that was Two books ago in my brain. I don't even remember. But they start the talking sunset. about the wrong
4: one, and they're like, actually, we've been the, the one that we're going to be reading. It's like, oh, okay, you don't have that one yet. <laughs> that one only exists in my
3: brain. Neat. Yeah, because we're finishing up, uh, we're at the very tail end of book three, you know, and obviously book two is coming out, which we wrote last summer. So, yeah, like that. Yeah. <laughs>
4: Why don't you go ahead and tell us about um, not only Liars Not, but Mask of Mirrors, in case our listeners did not hear the first episode with you and are jumping in now. Tell me about the series. I, I don't know if I could stick a list with doing the elevator pitch. I don't know if you prepped it. I didn't
3: prep it, but I can try. Um, <laughs> <Okay. clears throat> yeah, I, I need to get back into the groove of this. Uh, so the Rick and Rose series is the story of Renata Viraudux, a.k.a. Arenda Lenskaya, a.k.a. Ren, uh, who is a con artist who is trying to con her way into a noble family uh, to basically get the, you know, cash, cash, money, money, um, and ends up kind of falling afoul of all of the noble politics and the ballroom politics and... Uh, running into this masked vigilante whose whole purpose is to go up against the nobility. And so basically it's capers and hijinks and banter uh, and multiple identities and everybody kind of lying to each other. Marie, Marie often does the list from The Princess Bride, if you want to do that, because you've got a memorized. Rice.
2: Yes, I'm prone to quoting The Princess Bride when I'm made to elevator pitch it. I just say fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Hopefully you'll stay awake.
3: <laughs> but I think also because we, we both do have an anthropology and folklore background, uh, we've also called it when anthropologists attack in terms <laughs> of world building, because we both have a strong... Interesting. Interesting. Which for your audience
2: might be a good sales pitch. Elsewhere I go, that's probably not the best way to, to sling it at people.
4: <laughs> but hey, that fair warning. You get what you get.
1: I mean, you've got vigilantes and and police officers and you have con artists trying to scam their way into things. So it's basically all the things that are my jam all piled into one book. <laughs> so.
2: There's a reason the first book of yours I picked up was A Murder of Pages*. I'm like, hmm, this is striking some familiar chords in my head
1: (laughs) but you did get a blurb from me because because i was so excited when i read this and then i was like we need to get them on this show
4: (laughs) it is i haven't picked up liars not yet but i just i so thoroughly enjoyed the first book in the series it was just such a fun read and so immersive and fantastic and i think um talking about why it was so immersive and some of the ways to make a world that you build feel immersive and rich and layered and all of that jazz is why you're here today. Hurrah!
1: That also include the history of jazz within your world. <laughs>
4: <laughs> We've talked about this before, haven't we?
1: <laughs> because that is sort of, sort of the sort of thing we want to talk about is that idea of like how like all these different factors can sort of then meld together. And the thing that is just presented as like this, is just the normal thing happening here and now in the world is based on the threads of nine different things that you weave together in your backstory, in your world building, that you're not necessarily going to bore your readers with, but you know it. And that's what makes it such a more rich experience for the reader.
2: Yeah, some of it's the iceberg <clears throat> metaphor that I've heard used for writing of you only see 10% of what the writer has figured out about their their world Uh, and that's true it usually comes up in the context of the research that you've done on a specific topic but I think it also applies to the world building there are things Alyssa and I know about our world that just you you don't need it in the story and we're probably never going to tell you about it but we know it
3: yeah (laughs) yeah Well, and it's funny, because we, you were saying the history of da- jazz, and I was just thinking, you know, we haven't really done a lot of development of, like, the musical styles and histories. Yeah, uh, yeah music uh, we have... and the,
2: like, visual art and such, like, those are some areas we've sorely neglected. You can't fit yeah. everything, even into a book as packed with world-building as ours,
3: there's stuff we've neglected. So yeah. you've always got to make decisions. And I think that goes back to the iceberg. I was also thinking that the petticoat metaphor, if you only want to show them a flash Mm-hmm. Of, of all the stuff you've done because that's
0: more alluring than just <laughs> yeah
4: i love it i love it it's i'm so it's stealing that
0: metaphor <laughs> that's amazing you just love want to show a little
2: bit of ankle don't flash them completely
0: <laughs> but you want your petticoats to be like red yes mm-hmm.
2: yeah they've got to yeah. be you know attention
4: getting yes or sufficiently frothy you know so. or sufficiently frothy lots yeah. of ruffles yeah. <laughs> So we're talking about today just like the idea of deep history and complex history and nuanced history and that it's not like a timeline of things that occur, but rather these complex elements that play into each other and something from 50 years ago affects something now and it's just you know, all those fun, bonkers complexities. And I was wondering if you two would like to brag on anything in your world that you developed (laughs) like that. I mean, there's
2: definitely things where... I don't know how visible they are, but stuff like even just the way the city of Nadezhar is laid out, like we spent some time talking about, okay, it started out with a settlement on the island that's in the middle of the river Dejera, and then as the settlement grew, it expanded to the banks, and it's a very marshy delta area, and so the reason it looks kind of Venetian is that they basically built like stone foundations into the mud and drained that a little bit by having the canals between them. And if you go out to the edges of Nadezhar, you'll see houses on stilts, which is kind of what those settlements looked like before they got built up into these stone foundations and just you know that kind of thing. We know that's how the city developed and that's why it's laid out the way that it is. Um and <clears throat> I think we mentioned the still houses like briefly at the end of the <laughs> Mask of Mirrors, but it's hard to really show that most of the time because it's taking place in the city. And most of our characters are not people who will go, ah, yes, well, 500
3: years ago. (laughs) Well, and I think, interesting, because I was thinking one of my my favorite little bit, uh, group of like, kind of, you know, local like rebels, you know, they're like trying to take back their city. And I mean, you know, these types of revolutionary groups, uh, they're often very atomistic. There's there's, like their schisms and they change over time and everything like that. But there's like, usually like a, a kind of a, you know, if you look at things like ireland or something like that there's a history of recurring rebellions and so we have this as well where we kind of you know mention right now there's a particular situation but it's part of a much longer situation of different groups trying to take back the city but the way that we introduce this is this. there's there's a little girl and she's playing with her she's got like dolls and she's just she's a presenting girl she's playing with dolls on her stoop like you know kids do in a lot of different cultures and times, um, and she's having the doll who has like a little shock of you know red yarn hair, delivering an impassioned speech about how they're going to take back their city, and she's like giving the like the <sighs> of the crowds and everything, and that way we get to kind of give this background of this you know hero, this folk hero figure um, from 50 years before who her rebellion failed. But we kind of get to give this, like, snapshot of, like, these rebellions are not just yeah. happening now. They're over time, and they've changed, and they've had consequences that are felt today like economic, you know, ramifications yeah. and stuff. Yeah, because you know? there's been,
2: like, economic sanctions imposed because of that rebellion and so forth. But instead and of lecturing you about it, we've got a little girl being like, it's Elsa been the red, and I idolize her, and I'm going to play with her as my doll.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that the, both of those are, like, these are things that exist in people's everyday lives like it's there it's not something that you know you have to see like a timeline tacked up on a schoolroom wall to realize that this stuff is affecting people and how they live and how the world around them functions and what it looks like so i think that's really cool
1: you know it's also more interesting to have it just be woven into pop culture to into like nursery rhymes or games or something like that rather than it to be just some sort of Info dump of like, here's the thing from 50 years ago. And as you know, Bob, because I think that's a lot more fun way to do that sort of thing.
2: This is something Sarah minette <clears throat> does really well in the Doctrine of Labyrinth series, that there's just All of these passing, like, pop culture, superstition, or whatever references to things where you don't get the whole story about them, and you don't need the whole story about them. It's just something that makes you believe that there's, like, texture to these characters' worlds, and it's not the kind of fantasy world where that one cataclysmic event happened 3,000 years ago, and nothing in history has occurred since then, like it's the opposite
1: of that every, every once in a while i just my entire brain just gets locked into ranting about that movie bright which is oh God. supposed to be <laughs> <laughs> like,
3: i wanted
1: to yeah, like the it. i really wanted, wanted to, to. <laughs>
3: like, cuz i'm such like a 90s so elves and motorcycle kind of a fan mm-hmm. but
1: but it's like you got, got you got cops just standing around the station house Ranting about that the orcs fought in for the Dark Lord in the war 2,000 years ago, like this would be a thing you just chat about, like, as if it's a relevant thing today.
3: Yeah, well, and it's also, it's fun, I think, to kind of, you know, toss a little trim of the petticoat where you don't quite know where it comes from. Because I know we had, in book one, we had this kind of uh, guy who's constantly got a new gimmick a new thing he's working on and in that particular one he had a cabinet of curiosities kind of exhibit that he was doing <laughs> and and marie had one in particular uh they were uh, golden walnuts from the tomb of the shadow lily we come up with like six different ideas <laughs> for what is the deal with the golden walnuts from the tomb of the shadow lily but
2: they were just a thing it is cabinet of curiosities
3: <laughs> I, <laughs> who knows if I, we'll I, ever yeah, we, we may or may not actually explore but it just even little details like that you know make it kind
0: of feel please don't ever explain the golden walnuts because like that should be a noodle incident thing. What a fantastic just title say. for a noodle incident thing. The golden walnuts. Like I, yeah,
2: that, that I, I lean toward the, we will never actually explain what those are, maybe even to ourselves. <laughs> yeah,
3: but I, 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 like it when authors, you know, especially with, in our language, we make a lot of like literary references, pop culture references. Yeah. And when you look at like, you know, uh, uh, literature in the past, they're making references to other things, uh, contemporary and also previous to them and I like it when when you get kind of that that kind of layering of it feels like a deep history even if there's not of you know there are texts that are popular there are you know folk like not just folklore but there's shared stories and kind of shared pop culture yeah that yeah. kind of thing
2: yeah that's I think why Sarah Monette does it so well because I believe her background is in renaissance drama or renaissance literature more broadly, I don't remember which. But that stuff is leaking out the scenes with references to history and to classical mythology and so forth. <clears throat> and so she brought exactly that mentality to the way that her characters talked. And she's got the gift, this is a sort of the hard part of it, the gift of kind of mentioning those things in a way that you don't feel like it, it needs an explanation. You get enough from the context and you can move on. I mean, I say this, that was my reaction to it. There are probably are readers who are slamming to a halt every third sentence going, but wait, <laughs> tell me more about that. I don't understand. You haven't explained this, but for me, it works really well.
3: I want to know more about that thing.
2: But yes, it, yeah. it's, I am intrigued, but I don't need more.
3: Yeah.
1: Right. I Like when you're watching Shakespeare be performed and he throws in 20 of those references that most of us don't know those references anymore, but you get what they're talking about regardless. And I mean, yes, you know all the references, Cass. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking most people who, who haven't, you know, set up reading Titus by candlelight in the middle of the night. <laughs> Gosh,
0: one time, Marshall. Jeez. <laughs> but it is. It's like, it's how do you toss them enough to let them know, like, this is this world's Romeo and Juliet story. I don't need to give you the full text of the story, I don't need to give you a full synopsis, just to let you know, like in a little a positive, like, this is what this is. It is a tragic romance. Moving on.
2: Mm-hmm. Though I would say that's different. I, I feel like there's two things at work here. One is the I'm going to toss in some references so that you believe there is history to this world. And it's a different ballgame when there's history that the reader needs to know for the story and you do need to explain it. And then it's how do you get
4: that across to them. I feel like that's a different challenge because you can't just
2: do that with a throwaway line.
4: But I think that one thing that is cool too, and that and I saw you doing with you know the little girl and the doll, is it's not just that historical events happened, but that people have perceptions of them. Exactly. That this little, you know, this folk hero is a hero to the little girl. Somewhere else, someone is playing like the trial and execution of the horrible villain, you know, because, and, and, and you sense that, right? It's like, this is when you have things like, Folk songs and folk stories and the way people talk about the events of the past, it's, it's not just that they happened, but that they have opinions about what happened and how it's still affecting them and what they would like to see that history resolve as in their own time.
2: Yeah, we actually managed to get that into the Mask of Mirrors. So part of the history of the setting is that about 200 years ago, the place was conquered by a g- guy named Caius Safino who gets called the Tyrant. And then we needed the reader to know the story of like how he died and the the civil war that happened after that. And so we decided that there's a thing, there was a, a whole war that followed after it uh, that ended with most of Ra'san being retaken by the people who lived there, but the city of Nadezhda remained in kind of foreign control. And so there's a ceremony that happens every year where the leaders of those two places kind of come together for this really uncomfortable and politically tense uh, ceremony. And as part of that ceremony, there's a performance of basically the death of the tyrant. And our character, Ren, who's watching it, has this moment where she thinks about how she's seen this performed in a bunch of different ways, everything from like blood-spattered horror to sex farce. And then (laughs) she watches the version of it that's performed at the ceremony and sees like how do they present it in this context. And so we get exactly that this means things to people and they may interpret it in different ways depending
3: on who you're asking for their rendition of it. And and what the venue is and having official versions and unofficial versions and yeah, kind of like the passion plays. Uh, Mm. that that they used to have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still a bit of an info dump because we
2: have to be like, okay, here's the story of how the tyrant died, but we tried to (laughs) embed it in a way that would mean we're giving you that information in a context where it's doing something else for the story, not just going, okay, reader, here's the pivot.
3: Yeah, because also kind of showing current politics and tensions and who's- Exactly. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I do love the device of having your characters watching theater and the theater is giving historical information. It's, we do, it's we always, do that in The Liars. It's one of you, my favorites.
2: Yeah, I just realized we, we did pull a smaller scale version of this in The Liars, not as well. Slightly less mode-bearing history. Yeah. But it does lead to somebody um commenting on how interestingly
3: skewed the tale being told is. And it's like, you know, um that that's somebody not the way eat. I... Really yeah, yeah, it's like, somebody must be funding, this person must be funding this because it's telling it in this particular perspective to kind of kiss up to them. Yeah, well, and, and, and there's even a comment
2: about, like, uh, that's not the way I remember the history going. And somebody else says, history is whatever our gentet says it is. And that's the seat in their ruling council that handles, like, cultural matters. And so it shows kind of, like, that censorship of how things get presented in a nicely cynical way. We do not have a performance, I think, in the third book. So it's probably good we didn't go back to that well yet again. <laughs>
1: I, I, well, now we got
3: one in
4: there. <laughs> Expectations, y'all.
1: I have a bit in one of my books where one character basically like puts together a play just to like do like a, an acid test on the main character to like where where is he sitting politically? Is he swayable to the things I would? So let's put together this play and have him watch it and see how he reacts. And... I was the <laughs> piece of
2: paper and will catch the conscience of the king.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't done a play within a play within within a play within a play within the book. That's, ooh, that's, <laughs> that's an inception level that, okay, goals.
0: <laughs> what it's I love thing- about all this, though, is oh. that it depends upon, like, the idea of deep history depends upon characters having a memory and there being a cultural memory that extends even before their lifetimes, which is not always a sense you get in, in some fantasy novels. It's like, oh, no, we all woke up one day in this kingdom and, <laughs> and we're living our lives now. But it depends also on, like you said, who controls the narrative? Is that memory, that cultural memory, reliable? Has it been twisted? Do different people have different versions of the cultural memory? And that can be so much fun to play with in, in getting character across, too, I think. like Which version of events does each character sort of lean into or prize it can be a fun a fun way to communicate lots of things simultaneously.
2: Yeah, and some of this can be when you're getting started on a story, if you know this is something where you're going to need to convey this kind of information, then some of it can be, okay, how do I craft my characters to be the people who will know this kind of thing or who will be interested in learning it or something that will let you sort of get that in? Because there have been times where we've looked at things we're writing and gone, okay— other point of view characters which one makes sense to kind of do this with because some of them no there's just there's no way they don't care about that or they don't know about it we gotta (laughs) figure out who
3: to go with yeah we have a lot (laughs) of like who has the deepest emotional investment in not even necessarily in the relationships in the scene but in the kind of you know history or culture or whatever is being explored in the scene who cares about it
2: or can we get Tanaquist to ramble on about it?
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we do a very run. useful. We have a very useful info dump character. <laughs> yeah. You need one, you
2: know. <laughs>
1: it always is helpful to have that character.
3: You can play
2: a drinking game of every time a character cuts Tanaquist off mid-ramble, so that we don't info <laughs> dump for too long and drink.
4: But I think it's it's interesting too that like you know, there's there's political history and like the the political and. And Marshall and kind of, not Marshall you but Marshall like war. There's all kinds of other histories that characters might be interested in. Like someone might be very interested in technology or science or medicine. Someone else might be really, you know, more tied into economics or some kind of, you know, like the history of trading with other countries or, you know, whatever. So tying all those pieces together, I think, is where you get some really interesting stuff to play with in terms of just like the, the complexity of things affecting other things and all those threads kind of p- pulling together into hopefully beautiful tapestries. I feel like sometimes I end up with like terrible knots, but you know, you take what you can get.
2: The economics thing, um, I, I will try not to put your readers to sleep in my summary of this here, but when I was writing the Onyx Court books, which are historical fantasy set in London, uh, the second one, In Ash's Lie, takes place over the course of the English Civil War. <clears throat> so naturally, I had to go do a bunch of research into the English Civil War, which that was a whole adventure of its own. But one of the books that I read, um, I, I meant to get the title of it, it's like The Causes of the English Revolution from Some Year to Some Other Year. It was you know, exactly as exciting as that title sounds. But uh, well, one of the arguments in advance, because you look at the English Civil War, and you're like, okay, so Charles I was an autocratic asshole, and, you know, there were these personality conflicts with Parliament, and that's the kind of thing that's easy to convey in fiction. You can show the king being an autocratic asshole, and you can show the guys in Parliament, you know, having their problems. But this book is like, okay, so the basis of crown finances, going back to the beginning of England as a kingdom, is that the crown pays for the work of government, including war, out of the revenues from its own lands, Taxes are a rare thing voted in for very limited times, and you've got to go to Parliament and ask for it, and, you know, the rest of the time, the government pays its own way. And the argument of this book was that was getting increasingly untenable because government was getting more expensive, wars were getting more expensive, the revenue from land was dropping, and the crown kept selling chunks of it off every time they needed more money, which meant they had less revenue, on and on and on. Henry VIII staved this off for a while by dissolving all the monasteries and claiming all their (laughs) land and wealth, and so that was good for a while. But by the time you get to Charles, it doesn't work anymore. And this is one of the causes of the English Civil War. And I'm sitting there going, "How, how am I supposed to put that in a novel? (laughs) I mean, yes, one of my main characters was a member of parliament, but even then, like, having him sit and have a chat with somebody else about how, well, you know, hundreds of years ago, the way that this was set up is, you know, now causing these problems, like, 600 years later.
4: No. (laughs) How do I put that in a novel? Well, and, and thinking, too, that how often are we fully aware of all of the causes of the things that are happening to us right now? 50 years from now, someone's going to write the history of this time period. And have insights that we're sitting here going like, uh, I don't know why, why is it like this? But like with that distance time right now, you know, like in the 17th
2: century, people were not having entire careers engaged in analyzing <laughs> current events in the way we've got now.
4: And so, yeah, I think that even kind of playing with that, of like, maybe I can even seed some things that the characters might not be talking about, but my reader can notice that there's more going on here than just the surface reasons and the surface rhetoric that people use for explaining why they want to do what they do.
3: Yeah, well, and I think we, we do something like that in describing our economics in, in the first book. Uh, at one point, uh, Ren is sitting down with somebody who does have some familiarity with the economic situation. And they're talking about like, how did they get into the current system that they're in and he says something effective well this is what you get when you have a bunch of people who've been at war for like 75 years and they're just tired of it and they cobble something together out of like what they because they need to rebuild everything and so this is what you get when you cobble something together when you rebuild and then that's what you're stuck with yeah you never get around right <laughs> <of> to fixing it <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> you just kind of keep latching
3: things on and accruing. yeah
0: I think having characters complain about history is a great vehicle like, yes. you can have your tax guy going man i would like to go back in time and throttle the person who wrote this specific thing into the law that's dominated what we've been doing for the last 150 years <laughs> yeah. complaining like, is an
2: underrated tool of exposition <laughs>
3: <laughs> because that is something where you can kind of do an as you know bob because yeah. it's like, ah, this thing, it's driving me crazy. Yeah, that thing drives me crazy, too. <laughs> yeah.
2: There's one bit in uh, Dorothy Dunnett's uh Lyman Chronicles, where two characters sit and have a, a kind of really like sane and detailed conversation about the state of like English and Scottish and French politics in the 16th century. And one of them sort of like lays out a course of action that is not the one history followed that honestly might have worked out really well. And then there's a pause and the other one says, well, it's no use getting sensible about it. (laughs) And I love that moment because it kind of gives you a bunch of political information and then pulls it back a little bit by saying, remember, there's actual human beings involved in this. (laughs) <laughs> and that makes it messy. It's never going to work in that nice way that, you know, when you're a college student and you're on your third beer and you've figured out the solution to everything, like those don't work.
4: Well, yeah, I think that it's interesting, like how like points of tension can be really good places to reveal like what has happened to get to that point of tension. Like one of the things I wanted to play with in in my series was that different nations are at different points in terms of their economic development. Like this country that had a lot of money you know, a hundred years ago was kind of on the downturn and this country that has been kind of the backwater, oh, suddenly they're investing in all kinds of stuff and uh, they're up on the upswing. So like, how do people negotiate new relationships in terms of who is, who has power, who has money? How does this make us feel? It probably makes us feel crappy when we were the ones who had a lot of money and suddenly we don't anymore. And who are these upstarts? And like, again, complaining is a fantastic vehicle for showing how people get to where they're at.
1: Although, Marie reminded me, another fantastic vehicle is that college student on their third beer. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah, when you get, you know, the the street corner preacher who is, you know, ranting about the decline of morals ever since the glory days of whatever. Yeah, you get the people drunken in taverns, you know, Rowena, you've got a whole lot of people sitting around in taverns yelling about history. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Because it's very French revolution, right? You've got all these people picking up their pamphlets and... Well, I think it's also interesting. Um, I can't remember who was talking about the, like looking back, you know, 50 years and being able to have a kind of a view on on what we can't see now. Is this kind of idea that there's continuities in in the past where there there might not have actually been as much continuity as we think. Like looking back, we kind of create a continuity because we can tell the story about it, but that it's actually there's a lot more disruption. You know, even within like, you know, regimes and empires and things like that, that, you know, we might talk about a particular empire that seems to be long lasting, but there's actually a lot of disruption going on uh, in there. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Well, and like real life has so many red herrings. Like the stuff that feels (laughs) extremely important right now is like, oh, that actually was a blip that actually didn't matter. That was... Yeah, real life has
2: no (laughs) narrative continuity. That was the other thing with the English Civil War. I I work my way through this and I get to the end and I'm like, so all the characters who were important at the start of this have just vanished along the way. Um, And the things that they're arguing about at the end of the war are not even the things they were arguing about at the beginning of the war and the things that seem so important back that nobody gives a shit about now. (laughs) I'm like, who's writing
4: this shit?
0: editorial notes on history
4: Like history needs an
0: editor <laughs> one of my favorite um like kind of research books that i read for a
3: different venetian kind of based society that i was world building for was uh, city of fortune uh, which is about venice and it goes into a hilarious kind of breakdown of the fourth crusade which is my favorite crusade <laughs> because that is so bonkers <laughs> two, two heads of john the baptist were looted no, I love the Fourth Crusade. It does. Yes. I mean it's awful, it's terrible, but it's such a good crusade. They were so busy sacking Christian cities to pay back just Venice that they never actually got to the Holy Land. Like I forgot yeah. to get there. Just, yeah, we're, just we're gonna keep this on is
0: far enough. You know, That's communicated like three times. And...
2: Cass, I will say, I want editorial notes on history to be the title of something now. It
0: should be. It really should. Just the margin notes, <laughs> like, No through line... Plot's abandoned. This makes no sense. Why would someone act like that? (laughs) Who is this? You haven't mentioned this person before. (laughs) Too many names. Get rid of at least eight of these sons.
2: (laughs) Yes. I mean, that's one of the things that we're wrestling with in our third book right now, is that we actually really want to make sure that the big historical things that happen in the present moment of the story aren't just like two people did a thing and that fixed everything. We want there to be lots of people sticking their oars in. <clears throat> and that's hard enough when it's the present moments of the story. It's even harder when you're like, okay, well, yeah, like 200 years ago, this thing happened. And actually there were like 27 people involved, <laughs> but you can even see that in how we tell the stories of real history. We try to simplify it, right? That we will often narrow it down to a few people and we tell their story. And everybody who actually knows it
0: is sitting there going, well, actually there were like six other people. <laughs> Who stabbed Julius Caesar? Who stabbed Julius Caesar? (laughs) Everyone says Brutus, right? Like, there were 30 dudes, but we don't remember most of their names. And they were all real stabby. We remember Et Tu Brute. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Well, you even, like, blow it out past, like, the individual people involved, and you have entire, like, groups of people involved, entire populations who are moving as gelatinous masses of people in one direction or another and, like, influencing things just by, like, kind of group, you know, participation. Uh, not
2: even the like, gelatinous mass, it's like the, the screensavers with the balls all ricocheting off one another. <laughs> That's what they are. Like It's all of these things that are sort of like rubber banded together and bouncing and then yanking back just constantly in this chaotic fashion. And this is something that I know, like historians right now are really trying to push back against the A Few Great Men kind of model of teaching history. And they're trying to talk more about these sorts of forces like the you know, basis of finances for the English crown and how that influenced stuff but it's hard because we like stories about people and we like stories about a few people that we can remember and get to know. And so there's that force that keeps trying to simplify and pull us back to that. So, you know, here we are in fiction going, how do you do that thing we can barely do
4: with the real history? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you do have those fun moments of like, well, if that person hadn't said that thing or hadn't done that thing, like how would this have played out? It's it's an interesting interplay between between the forces things that happen and those individual moments where something does change things in some way or another. Yeah, there's
2: an article in Uncanny Magazine, I think by Joe Walton and Ada Palmer called The Protagonist Problem. And it talks about the tendency, especially right now for our fiction to kind of want to tell the stories where a few people who have protagonismos, like the the, the quality of being the protagonist change things but we do have fiction and even in, in not that descent of the past uh, that shows a different model and i can't remember the name of the example that they gave but there's something where um it's something like the like, story takes place in a hotel and <clears throat> people are getting murdered there or something and it's the decision of the desk clerk to put people in a particular room rather than another one you can look at that and go this story would have played out so differently if that desk clerk had given them a different room and so paying attention to the ways that that small action by that one person changed the course of things, not in a they controlled the whole story kind of way, but in that kind of that butterfly flapped its wings. And because of that, things are different. We have a plan for a butterfly to flap its wings at a particular point in book three. Yeah. It's not been like one of our secondary characters. It's not even really a tertiary character. It is a minor spear carrier is going to do a thing that's going to crack open some very important stuff.
1: I mean, I, I love that sort of like for the want of a nail, the war was lost. Sort of, yeah. sort of, sort of storytelling where you can you can show that you know that because this one guy turned left instead of turning right, then, oops, the plague took over the whole city because.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I will say for ways to do this because um, we brought up Dorothy done a moment ago. I am increasingly of the opinion, even though I have yet to actually attempt it myself, that. Epic fantasy or anything that's trying to do this like big sweep of, uh, you know, how, how did things end up here and, and what are all the factors going into it really needs to bring back use of omniscient perspective. Because Dorothy Dunnett is able to tell you so much about the politics and the forces that are at work in the incredibly complicated history she's trying to describe, and she's able to do it efficiently and vividly because she's writing in omniscient. And that whole, like, you know, for want of a nail, or if he had just done this other thing, if you've got that omniscient voice, that can step back for a moment and tell you that. I actually think this is a vastly underused tool. I mean, like, we we almost never have omniscient anymore, except as a brief, I'm going to set the scene with some description before zooming in. We need to bring that back, because that would let us do so much more of this depth in a really efficient manner.
0: I'm absolutely with you. I, I often feel, like, Heckled, hedged in by the um, the constraints of the modern sensibilities for point of view, like it's just it's something that changes over time. But sometimes I look at Victor Hugo and go, you know, he got to he got to have a character like ramble for like two pages about the history of an object in between picking it up and speaking. <laughs> I envy you, Victor Hugo, like. <laughs>
2: like neil stevenson he can write it for two pages at you and he's so goddamn entertaining while he does it you're like yes please tell me more about
3: this yes describe the describe the visceral kind of body fluid sounds that are happening in this conference room which is one of my favorite two page neil stevenson passages <laughs> it's, it's so good yeah, I... and it's all done to emphasize how quiet the conference room was mm-hmm. and it's it's just really well done
0: is, is this a horror story because to me this sounds like a horror yeah. story you no know, it was it was uh it was in cryptonomicon and no it was just like talking about
3: like the various noises that our bodies naturally make and like describing the whole digestive <laughs>
4: okay so i think that Cass Kat- and my misophonia is just like acting up right now
1: <laughs> neil really <laughs> does like his bodily functions i mean that's just part of what he writes <laughs> though, though it does make me think about like the styles of more literary fiction like something like john irving where like like a character walks in and then he's like "Boo! i'm just gonna go for five pages of the whole history of this character up until this point okay then we'll get back into the action and it's you you do not see that in in (laughs) speculative fiction much anymore unless unless it is somebody who can pull off that sort of whimsical narrative voice like i'm thinking more like neil gaiman but you know, i
3: that's... vividly remember like uh one time reading uh Stephen bruce's uh, i think it was his phoenix guard uh and it so it was not his vlad talto's novels it was like the much more kind of where he's almost they're almost like a a, a parody of, <sighs> of of those types of novels but he I'm does like he goes, years,
2: yeah
3: yeah and and he goes into like a, a, a five-page digression into the history of The Saddle or something like that. Uh, uh, and and I the entire time I was reading it, I was like, I can't believe he's making me read this. I can't believe I'm so engaged in reading this. Yeah, I think we've unfairly
2: gotten into a mindset where we sort of act as if that kind of, let me just tell you about this for an extended period is a priori bad. And it's only bad when it's boring. But, you know, then it's a little bit of a, are you good enough to pull it off? And because we have such a mindset of this is bad, then readers are, you know, you know, react more negatively to it, whether it's kind of deserved or not, unless you are super good at it. And that's when you're, you know, Neil Stevenson.
4: So if we are not going to write an omniscient or are telling a story that honestly would be better in point of view or multi-point of view, what are other ways that we can convey this kind of complex, deep, nuanced history.
3: I think the thing that point of view does give you is is character voice um and perspective. Uh and like some, I think Cass was saying earlier about the the or maybe it was Rowena, the, the interest that a particular character has and how they can kind of like frame everything from their everything's fishing metaphors or something like that. I think that's a real time <laughs> thing. Yeah, thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah I think um you know, there were certainly things I could get away with in the memoirs of Lady Trent because I had an intellectually curious main character. And actually, there were there were things that I could pull off there because and I didn't even know this when I, I chose the approach to point of view in those books. But it was the best idea I made all series. The idea to have them be memoirs. So she is writing her life story for an audience, and she's doing this when she's an old woman. And so I could put things in there that would be like, "Now you young people won't know this because you know this was before your time, <laughs> but let me tell you how things were when I was young. And it was part of the character, it was part of the voice. I think that that particular form of first-person narration a a lot of room to leverage that sort of thing but a lot of the first person we get is the more immediate it's riding along with them in the moment rather than it being a I am telling my story after the fact and there's downsides to the after the fact thing I have definitely seen reviews of the book saying yeah but like there's no tension because I know she survives to the end I'm sitting here going how often does the main character die before the end of the book just
4: (laughs) just asking but okay (laughs)
1: Especially in a first-person narration in the first yeah. place. Like, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really matter
4: if it's present or or past tense or very far past tense. Usually we let them live to the end.
1: love to read a book that was bold enough to be in first person like two-thirds of the way through, and then that person dies, and then it's third person the rest of the way out. I feel like time has <laughs> passed long enough that isn't Mary Grant's feed?
3: Doesn't that happen in Mary Grant's feed? Um, I have not read it. I don't know. I'm pretty... Oh, yeah, I know. Uh, I know... Spoilers, everyone. I know the main character dies near the end of the book, and I'm pretty certain it's in first person. And I, then, I have done yeah. it in third person with a trunk novel where, yeah, the main character actually finishes out the book as a ghost. But I actually it's also interesting because one of the things I'm more and more interested in is is people being wrong about like Mm. what they think about how the world works a certainly iconoclastic point of view and i'm thinking of there's this great um kind of very short book the cheese and the worms about this renaissance like this 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 guy this medieval guy who was a cheesemaker, who like you know he was part of basically this book club where he and a bunch of you know his friends were like you know literate it was like the kind of up-and-coming middle class you know uh, bourgeois literacy and so they were exchanging all these religious texts and also secular texts and he came up with this whole cosmology about how angels were like the worms that came from the cheese as it like <laughs> developed and 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 he had and he was like tried by the inquisition multiple times but he would not would not give up on his cosmology of the angel cheese
0: worms <laughs> i do i have i have a lot of questions <laughs> that's not the weirdest thing i've heard of in medieval theology
1: the whole thing of just letting characters just be wrong about it like that's the thing you don't see too often is in speculative fiction because i think it's another thing where like the readers will reject that if you i mean you see this all the time in star trek fandom where any piece of information that a character has said is gospel. And like, you can't be like, you know, you can't be like, well, that's just what somebody said about Vulcans. That doesn't mean that's what's actually necessarily the, the lived truth of Vulcans. And if you take that as some sort of thing where thus going against what this one person said once is like some sort of continuity violation, then it all falls apart. And I, I wish as a genre, we embrace the idea of people just being wrong. About about their history, about the about what their world is like.
4: You know, and I, and I think, and I think part of it is you know that we as writers have to respect the fact that we are introducing an entirely new world to our readers. Yes. So if it is if there's too much, do I trust this person? Is this real? Oh God, I'm completely lost. Like like there's there's an element to not overusing it, um, because then the on ramp becomes so steep as to be like a spiral, spinning them directly off into the <laughs> abyss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so lost. But yeah, I think especially once you've earned the reader's trust and have, you know, the ability to fan out a few different viewpoints and a few different ideas and kind of let the reader like look at them and say, and what do you think reader is, is legit here and let's, let's play. I think that that can be fun, but yeah, it takes, it takes skill and nuance to do it. I, I
2: agree that you are increasing the cognitive burden when you do that, because essentially it's like you're giving the audience an unreliable narrator and the unreliable narrator is the author like that. that isn't what
1: <laughs> you shouldn't trust me. I'm just writing this.
2: <laughs> what were you thinking? No, but I think one of the things you can do, uh, and this works best when it's something where there's multiple point-of-view characters, but you can also do it just through how characters talk. If you're showing from early on that people have different perspectives on you know, some particular thing, that one person spins it as like, and then this you know, horrible oppressor was there, and then somebody else is like, ah, yes, that great king who was, you know, the good old days of that, something like that. You're already showing that people will have different perspectives on stuff, and just because a character puts it one way Doesn't mean that's the way that it really is. But I will say on the more macro scale of it, um, the Dragon Age video games, I think, actually did a really fantastic job with this. They said from the outset that any piece of information you get in the game is a piece of information processed through the viewpoint of a character. It is not necessarily gospel from the writers of the game. And then, uh, basically, in the, the last DLC, which is really more like the the sort of final act of the game Dragon Age Inquisition, they're like, oh, and by the way, we're going to take a whole chunk of stuff here and tell you, here's what was actually going on underneath that. And it basically ripped my heart out and stomped it into the mud in some really <laughs> impressive ways because of how I had been playing through the games and the narrative I had built up for the character I was playing. I was just like, uh. ugh... <laughs> So it worked really well, but I will note, this is something they did after doing Dragon Age Origins, and Awakening is the expansion for that, and Dragon Age 2, and Dragon Age Inquisition, and all the bits of DLC, and there are novels, and there are comic books, and then they did Trespasser, and that's when they pulled that on me. And it worked because there was a sense of the history you know is partial anyway people don't have complete records of the past people tell myths about what
3: things were like way back in the day and they winged. And I think and I think they were also very dedicated to to not uh having one true mythology that exactly. is not having like an external validation of these are the gods and these are how they actually work
1: There are definitely ways you can you can cue your reader to the idea of that somewhere in the past when someone was given the choice between printing the truth and printing the legend they printed the legend and and then but that the truth is still known um this was a thing i i played with in way of the shield where i have a whole thing of like the founding fathers of the country but that's that's the myth of like these 10 people are the people who made the country what it is today and having my main character who is a history buff walk into this painting of these 10 people and be like they were never in the same room at the same time
2: You need the pedantic
1: nerds who are waving their wiki, going "put, put, put." Well, actually, <laughs> who commissioned this painting? I want to yell at
4: them. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that all these things, like you know, from different perspectives, and the acknowledging of of like what is what is just the legend versus what you're building up around that, versus what maybe are facts that actually happened. Like, I think it helps us avoid like the really over simple, really flat history um, that I sometimes call, like, the just-so stories. Like, well, this is because this. And, like, I feel like you see them a lot in, like, memes and I'm going to call out Twitter, man, Twitter threads where people are like, fun historical fact! And it's usually like, no, that's not... That is, that is so oversimplified. <laughs> that's not how any of this worked. Yes, there may be a tenuous connection between those two things, but, in fact, there are, like, 500 other elements affecting disconnection that that let it, you know, play out the way that it does. But I think we as as people seem to gravitate toward the just-so stories. Yes. So I think it's, it's a trap that we fall into in real life, and it's a trap that we can fall into in writing, you know, fictional worlds too.
2: Yeah, I actually literally have on my desk at the moment a book called Captive of the Labyrinth, which is about Sarah Winchester, the woman who built the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose. And basically, 95% of everything you've ever been told about the Winchester Mystery House is bullshit. Like, virtually. Including what they tell you at the Winchester Mystery House. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> the house itself relies on the tourists coming in, and it's going to be so much more interesting if you're telling the story of this crazy woman who believes she was like haunted by the ghosts of the people, killed by her husband's rifle, etc. And... Not a single piece of that is true. And even things like, oh, the house is so weird. There are staircases that go nowhere. Yes, because the floor that staircase used to lead to collapsed in the 1906 earthquake and they didn't bother
3: rebuilding it. That being said, the house is really cool.
2: The house is (laughs) (laughs) very cool. But people wouldn't come visit it if you were just like, come look at this sort of architecturally weird place. I mean, <laughs> and the ghosts and... Yes, I mean, I would too, right? <laughs> Not about. enough to pay for the maintenance
0: of it. That's well, well, the, the, the old marketing, marketing thing, right? right? You, don't you don't sell the sell steak, steak, you, you sell, sell the, the sizzle. sizzle. Well,
3: yeah. <laughs> even
2: if you have to make up the sizzle entirely, and the steak
3: is, in fact, a piece of shoe leather. <laughs> you can say, like, 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 80% of Welsh identity, exactly. <laughs> And <laughs> including a town that's like 50 letters
2: long <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but no what Marshall was saying with the like 10 founding fathers and so on you really see these processes at work with anything that involves sort of like nation building um, anything that is here's the story we tell about our country and ourselves as a people like honestly anytime I get that sort of story that that kind of narrative in a book I'm immediately going yeah I don't believe it really worked like that Like, I believe that is the story these people tell themselves, but I will be sorely disappointed if this becomes plot relevant and it turns out, yes, they have it exactly right and it happened precisely that way. I'll be like, really? Oh. Huh.
0: I don't believe that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) This is one of those subjects that that we can, like, just wind ourselves up and go. for.
0: (laughs) We we can talk us uh, some history.
2: One point that we kind of haven't raised yet, though I think it's been implicit in some of the things that we've said, you know, we see right now with our actual history, the effects of what happens when we start listening to the versions of those events that are being told by especially marginalized groups. And I think that within your fiction Anything where you've got a, a diversity of characters along whatever axis that, you know, different genders may remember things differently or have different perspectives on what they meant uh, in different ethnic groups, uh, in foreign nationalities, different religious groups different uh, economic classes. Like, pick a category and you're probably going to get a different view of, ah, oh, yes, this was the golden age. And there are people going, um, yeah, your golden age involved, like, oppressing us and giving us no voice in anything whatsoever. Not so golden for us. And so the more that your cast is people from different corners of that setting, the more opportunity you're going to have to bring it in. And that goes double if you're using those multiple points of view instead of being locked into a single one. And I think, frankly, if you're locked into a single point of view, that's not the best vehicle for doing something that's going to convey a lot of depth unless the character is focused on discovering and working with that depth.
4: Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting when you compare something like, you know, all of England's glorious wars and then all of the anti-conscription songs that were clearly written by women. Like, you know, just ask ask them how they felt about this. Like, we're not happy. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just remembering at one point, I don't know why the War of 1812 came up, and I was talking to a British person, it came up, and they're just like, yeah, you won that war because we were pretty
4: <laughs> elsewhere and, like, barely even bothered fighting it. We were busy. Like you call it, you call yeah, you call it 1812. We're gonna go ahead and call it the Napoleonic Wars. And by the way, you did the same thing with the French and Indian War, which, by the way, (laughs) that was our Seven Years' War. That's you're a blip. You were a blip of what was going on. Yeah, no, I've seen arguments for the Napoleonic
2: Wars actually being sort of a World War Zero.
4: Because uh-huh. there were many conflicts in many places that were all part of the same mess of things. I've even heard that for the Seven Years' War, in fact, that that was the original World War because there was just stuff happening. Yeah. yeah.
1: I, I had just seen, because sometimes I stumble into history TikTok, where people somebody asked the question of, like, in England, how do they teach the Revolutionary War? And these British people were responding, they really don't. I'm sorry, we, we, <laughs> we really don't. Yeah,
4: like maybe get a line in a textbook. Yeah, well, and like I, I think there's even an argument to be made on that, just from the perspective of like, so how did the Americans win the American Revolution? Like, you could also say like, why did the British decide to just go ahead and, you know, cut our losses? We've got investments elsewhere. Y'all are way, so, way when, too much. When did they just go
1: sunk costs? Sunk yep. costs. We're t-. just...
2: Um, well, and, and we've gotten some interesting perspectives because we set up a Discord server recently for our readers, and we've actually got an interestingly international array of people so yeah. far. Um, and so at one point, uh, one of our Polish members uh, started talking about World War One and World War II from the perspective of a Pole. Like an American, you go, yeah, World War I was like the crappy war. It was a war where nothing good happened. It accomplished nothing whatsoever. It was just awful grinding misery that left people with PTSD and a second World War later. Poland goes, that's the war where we got our country back because we had been partitioned. And then at the end of it, there was Poland again. And it was great. And World War II sucked because that was the war where basically none of our allies helped us. And, you know, we got stomped on again. And so the attitudes towards those two wars are diametrically different in Poland because their experience of them was radically different. And I thought, yeah, I I never thought of it from that angle. Because you know how much do U.S. schools bother teaching you about Polish history? They don't. Same as British schools don't care about the American War of in, or like Independence. Yeah, or the yeah, Civil War, rather.
4: Well, it has been an absolute blast talking to both of you again, and I'm so glad that you could both come on. Um, and as is our tradition, we would like to to ask a parting gift of you of a little bit of world building trivia. Crap, I'm having that
2: paralysis. Like I know I've been reading plenty of fascinating things lately, and I remember none of them. Okay, here, here's here's <laughs> I Um, I found a a very cool book because I wanted to learn more about like astrology and such in different cultures. And I still actually haven't found that book. But there is a book called People of the Sky that goes into astronomy and some astrology cross-culturally. And one of the things it brings up is that there's a number of places around the world where the layout of how a house gets built is linked to what's going on up in the sky. I'm like, that's the kind of detail I'm not sure I have ever seen in a novel, except with the limited thing of like a passage tomb or something of, oh, this sun will line up in this spot. But I'm like, domestic house architecture. How often does that come up of, yes, when we put the smoke hatch in the roof, we're going to put it where in a particular season, you can see a certain constellation. Like, I don't see that in stories. So there you go.
3: I love it. Trying to think of something, anything. So I was talking to somebody about business recently. So I don't know, there's something about, there's a particular dye that is created from a particular mollusk, and because they have to like harvest a lot of these mollusks, this one not very inhabitable area otherwise got settled, and I'm just like trying to build something out from there, just because <laughs> I, I like I like the idea of like, there's there's so much that happens because of a particular like... A, a strange resource that suddenly becomes very mm. popular because like, you know, this dye, it, it creates like this great purple dye or something like yeah, that. Why, like, why are, people living, in this,
2: why are yes. people living in this inhospitable area? Well, it's because there's that one thing there that's yeah. worthy the pain and effort of staying <laughs> that extracting it.
4: Yeah. Well, I like that. Maybe Marshall, maybe snail lick Island is actually not that nice, but people live there to, to harvest the snails. snails? Yeah.
1: <laughs> just just to harvest the snails. Or they've they've made it nice over time, yes. but like it, yes. it, it was didn't just start a rock. That way. It was just a stark rock, rock with a bunch
0: and... of snails on it. <laughs> it's actually just like some sailors got shipwrecked there, and then when they got rescued, they were like, "Nah, we we want to stay here. We uh, we <laughs> like this rock now." because we've licked all the snails, and it was a wild experience. Inhospitable Rock, that's where I want to be.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Send some food, because we can't grow any here, but other than that... Well, oh, yeah, and that's,
0: like, the
4: fun thing, too, when it's, like, a super inhospitable place, and, like, the weird trade networks of, like... We have to have people bring in absolutely everything. So who are we making friends with? <laughs>
2: I'll, I'll say briefly, um, My one of my favorite blogs, a collection of unmitigated pedantry, <laughs> which I recommend to everybody who likes this kind of stuff, talked about the line of, you know, oh, Afghanistan, the graveyard of empires. It's like, okay, first of all, no, there have been many successful empires in that area. And second, the reason it looks that way to the West is because it keeps on being not worth the expense of maintaining your presence there and having to ship in all your damn infrastructure and try to get things out of there again. Um, and so he, he called it uh, the midlife crisis purchase of empires. That it's like, <laughs> it's the place you acquire when you don't know what else to do with your <laughs> empire. And it's the first thing you regret later on and go, you know what? I never should have even picked this up. You have
1: oh God, it's so true. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. yeah, so. I really didn't need a, my own personal plane. <laughs>
0: But I kept <laughs> getting ads for it, and everyone else seemed to have one. And, I... <laughs> yep.
4: Well, thank you both so much for coming on, and we um, we look forward to seeing you in person. Hopefully, fingers crossed, in a couple of weeks at WorldCon. So. Yes, we are going to be there. So, yeah, I was gonna say I think Marina,
3: Cass, and Marina. Yes, we're all on we are panel.
4: all on the all same all panel. All four of
1: you are on a panel together. And- uh <laughs> huh. I can't even go see it because I'm, I'm, I'm counter-programmed at the same oh, time.
0: <laughs> That's a bummer because I bet it's going to be wild. We're, we're going to be talking about textiles and politics and I think it's going to be just off the hook. we going to get back to
2: snails real fast, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, thank you guys again. We yeah, obviously are, are nerds of a similar feather
0: to you. Yeah. <laughs> Very true.
1: Hi, you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Coming up on January 5th, we will have a mini-episode about our Worldcon and Hugo experiences, and our next full episode will go up on January 19th, where we will be launching exciting new world building adventures for 2022. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write? Links to all that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us another fan to of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.